Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest, the greatest edition of Mixed on Fiction. You are here with your host, Nick Munez. Today we are reading Jerry Hopkins' The Lizard King. I want to do one thing today, baby. I want to rock! Today, we have got Jim Morrison. He's going from the poet, a young, well-read Dionysian, going to be the rock star, banging more redheads than you have ever met. Then the drunk, then the dead man, starter of the 27 Club. Jim Morrison, you know the story. We're taking it a step deeper today. His girl, Pamela, said that she drove him home from the circus the day he died. There are conflicting stories which our author, Mr. Hopkins, knows about. And I'll take it a step deeper than that, where Jerry's too scared to. So your dad has to be a Navy admiral to be a rock star, the highest rank in the Navy, and be part of the Manhattan Project. Hmm. Was Mr. Morrison also there for the Gulf of Tonkin false flag event? Oh yeah, I think he was. Mr. Hopkins, he first saw our author today, watched the doors, in the London Fog Club. It's on the Sunset Strip in LA. The year was 1966, and what was happening in Los Angeles is called the English Invasion. The American rock scene was being fucking taken over by these King George chaps. I mean, these gaunt-faced, fag-smoking British blokes. Get them out of here. They think they can run LA just because the Beatles blew up. Nah, if you're gonna blow up, you gotta bring real rock music. The Doors did just that. They're the first, they took the crown back, baby. Why did Jim Morrison cross the road? To break on through to the other side. <laughs> so I told my dad, Jim Morrison sucks. He goes, son, there'll be no slamming of the doors in this household. Maybe you've seen the band biography before. It's called No One Here Gets Out Alive. I highly recommend it. I think the introduction we used for the show today is truthful enough. That was a live action remake. The movie No One Here Gets Out, it's based off of this book. Jerry Hopkins, all of his quotes are reused in that. He says, when the doors were at the height in the late 1960s, Jim died in rumor nearly every weekend, usually in a car accident like James Dean and often in a fall from a hotel balcony where he'd been showing off for friends, either by hanging from it by his hands or dancing along its edge. At other times, he died from an overdose of something alcoholic, hallucinogenic, or sexual. If the leader is alive in a group, it's a cult. If the leader is dead, it's a religion. If no one knows whether the leader is dead or alive, it's the doors. Jim Morrison lived on the edge. No one knew whether this man was sentient. I mean, in the 60s, they knew what it meant to be far out. Everybody else can get off on this one guy who's pushing it further than everybody else. So whether that is a hotel balcony or the psychedelic frontier of consciousness, Jim Morrison was ballsy enough to live on that edge. We don't really have characters like this today. I don't know, Jeffrey Epstein's the only one that's ballsy enough to fake his own death as well. I forget, like, Hamilton Morrison is one of these psychedelic frontier guys. Sure, we'll talk about that today. The 60s are truly an important era for understanding American culture. Jim was a scholar, he was a poet, he hated Apollo, loved the wine god, expressed his work through drug addiction, he said. To me, his work came out through, like, rolling around on stage and mumbling into a mic. I did my research, baby. 
these cultural icons. They always show up in the middle of a mini renaissance. In the 60s was a special time, free thought, free love. Jim Morrison is looked at for starting some of those ideas. And you know they got their band name from Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception. I'm gonna read that motherfucker here eventually. It wasn't a joke, but the more you know now. Idolatry, that's gonna be the theme today. It's an issue, and it's getting worse. 2020, everybody's got their favorite influencer in their pocket. Imagine if Jim Morrison had a TikTok. There would be chicks putting bath bombs in their bathtub, ODing in their own bathtubs. And you see it in like the open mic scene either. even. There are people portraying themselves as holier than thou. You know, charlatans are all about dog shit. I mean, dogma. Don't step in any of it. Today, you are going to learn how to become a rock star. Step one, make your dad orchestrate the false flag of Gulf of Tonkin. Step two, profit. I mean, I understand the pitfalls of rock star. Like, you shouldn't put all of this scene of music up on a pedestal. But it's good fuck you to the man, which is something we've truly forgotten about. Again, don't uh, waste your life in this scene because everybody's just using each other. Why did the L.A. woman leave Hollywood? Mr. Homo Rising. <laughs> and why did Jim Morrison kill himself? It's a bad case of the Roadhouse Blues. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back after a word from our sponsors. About the author, Jerry Hopkins. Make sure you guys are checking out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the niche. A new meme video goes up on the first of every single month. We got a really good one. A little bit offensive this month. And then towards the end of the month, we do hike videos on that page. And in the middle, you guys know you're getting a top secret book. This month's the green book. Absolute killer. Gerald Hopkins. This real name is Elisha. He was born in 1935 passed in June of 2018. He was born in Camden, New Jersey. Hey, a fellow Joyzy boy. He was raised by Quakers. No fucking way. That's like something you learn about in fourth grade New Jersey history class. They split the entire state into east and west. South Jersey today we call slower lower. I think Camden is, they're part of Slower East, what fucking gay joke. (laughs) I saw the biggest alligator I've ever seen in Camden, New Jersey. The more you know, his name was Mighty Mike. It was like a 30 foot long alligator. Go check that guy out. Uh, What do you call an Indian guy who works for Quaker Oats? Poraj. Jersey boy Jerry, he was an American journalist. He's an author best known for writing the first biographies of Elvis Presley and, of course, Jim Morrison. He spent 20 years as a correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine. We might have to read that one eventually. The Elvis. That guy, Elvis, deserved to have his name stolen by Elvis Costello because he stole all of his music from black people. Oh, young mama, come on, put a banana on my pancake. (laughs) That guy. Jerry Hopkins was married five times. His latest wife got him a citizenship in Thailand where he dumped out eight kids. Women in Thailand, they're like a box of chocolates. You never know which one has nuts. (laughs) Lady boys, us Jersey boys know big girls don't cry. They don't cry. (laughs) 
I'm raping your ears. I wonder if that's true for Jerry's four ex-wives. I just whiffed on the soundboard. All right, well, we're going to throw it over to another word from our sponsors before we can actually start the book. (laughs) Jerry Hopkins, The Lizard King, Chapter 1, The Child. First chapter is going to be the fastest, going to get some family context out of the way. Jerry writes, Jim's father, Steve, was from Leesburg, Farda. Farda. Farta. When he was in high school in the 1930s, he was too small for football, so he was a cheerleader and a gymnast. It's probably why he had to build the atomic bomb to overcompensate. He got good grades and was a gentleman. We didn't dare to do anything we weren't supposed to do, said Steve. Steve Morrison was a dainty male gymnast, which explains the uh, bone frame, the model-esque skinny Jim Morrison style. Steve graduated after being bullied from the Naval Academy. He was stationed in Hawaii. There he met his missus. They moved to Florida, and the dad was deployed in the Pacific in 1943. So he was a bit of a war hero. That's how he moved up the ranks, stationed in Melbourne the whole time. Not much of a war hero. I don't think there was a lot of fighting in Melbourne. Post-war, the parents start popping out some kids. Jim and his sister, quote, At the age of five, Jim was in a car, traveling along a highway between Albuquerque and Santa Fe with his father and his grandmother, Caroline. She told me, We came upon an accident. Indians were wailing and crying. Later, we thought that was very unusual because we thought Indians didn't cry. We thought they were more stoic than that. Jimmy was very much affected. It was an eventful upbringing. The quote continues, Years later, Jim would claim that the souls of those dying Indians leaped into his head when the Morrison car stopped. Jim, this guy was always attuned to magical thinking, it sounds like. The Native American culture is most of the fodder of what the hippie movement is. (laughs) Jim was born for this bullshit. The reason you should care about this, Jerry putting it into a better quote than I could, Jim's dad's assignment in Albuquerque had something to do with the atomic bomb. Steve was assigned to White Sands. It was all top secret, and Jim's parents made a pact not to talk to anybody about his work or home in an agreement that remained in force for many years. Dad, what do you do for work? I definitely don't create the biggest weapons of destruction in history. The Manhattan... (laughs) This guy definitely had connections in the Laurel Canyon Film Studio. We'll have that book on eventually. You got to read the one of the Hit Machine. I think that's a documentary, so it'd be easier to digest. It's a music conspiracy on its own. There's one group who made like, it's over 60 number one hits, and they would just sell songs to other bands. The Morrison, the Doors will cross with them as well later. Yeah, Jerry's too vanilla bean for all this shit. He's talking about Jim as a great student. His dad kept a military regimented household. We had Nikki Six last year. That guy had a whore of a mom, rotating boyfriends. One guy came through and was so unbearable that he stabbed himself through the arm. And whose lyrics are better for it? Kickstart my heart, I'm on my way home sweet home. Or the young poet, into this house we're born, into nuclear testing were thrown. <laughs> yeah, I guess you don't have to get hurt to actually write deep. Getting towards the end of chapter one here, here's a pretty good anecdote. It's about his girlfriend from high school. Jim also tormented his girlfriend, Tandy Martin, who lived in a house nearby. 
on a bus trip in Washington, D.C., Jim pulled off Tandy's shoes and socks and examined so everyone on the bus could hear. I want to kiss your precious feet. More than once in Washington, Jim told her, find your own way home. Then he ran away. I'd have no idea where I was, she told me. He pioneered the foot fetish, it sounds like, in the back of the bus. The theatrics never end. Listen to this one. In school, he walked up to female students he didn't know, bowed deeply, and recited romantic 18th century poetry. Once in class, he ran around the room chasing an imaginary bee. He left another class saying he had to go home because he was having brain surgery that afternoon. (laughs) What? There's nothing like a creative, compulsive liar. Anybody could chase around a fake bee. This guy said, I'm having brain surgery later. I got to go home early teach. This is the ultimate bro. He acted like a retard, but he knew his shit. All the poetry was stored up in his brain surgery head. Jerry said, Jim's bedroom was walled with books on shelves he built himself. While in Almeida, he was struck by Jack Kerouac's novel, On the Road. And since the read, the Beat Generation poets and novelists had their books lined up next to his. He read Balzac, Rimbaud, Moyler, Joyce Camus, and Baudelaire. He didn't say any of those right. His teacher sensed that he had some like innate abilities, but he only had a B-plus average senior year they gave his school an iq test it wasn't a normal thing he said he suspected it was because of him and jim scored a 150 that's three distributions from maxing out the test <laughs> like less than five percent of people score in that range so i kind of got to ask here what are grades even measuring if iq tests measure iq do grades measure obedience Go along to chapter two, The Scholar. Jim's parents, they weren't much of drinkers. They would often go find, like, empty wine bottles in their trash. wonder who that came from. Jim would come home drunk, like, five nights a week. They said he got drunk at home solo often. He also refused to go to church with his family. Makes this next story all the more suspicious. Quote, he spent his afternoons at coffee shops whose owner was a known homosexual. The man told Jim that when he went cruising for guys, he always went with underwear, saying, always show your meat, advice that years later would serve Jim well as a rock star. (laughs) That's very silly foreshadowing. This guy would go cruise around with a known homosexual. I like that term, cruising. We're cruising for cock. He's pulling sausage on the biggest stages ever, you'll see later. You gotta hang brain. It's not just about gay straight here. Rock is about sexual ambiguity, baby. I walk around my gym locker room with my sausage touching the ground. I'm the only one that still pulls cock. And it's not straight to hide your dick. That's right, I'm saying the straightest thing you can do is expose yourself to other men. What is this? All these fucking prudes hiding themselves in towels. I don't want to see your cock, but I have to know that you aren't hiding because you're gay and you don't have a boner underneath your towel. Am I making sense here? (laughs) Jim's parents obviously thought that he was gay because it was the 1950s. He was wearing tight clothes and drinking wine. More like early 60s. Should be drinking scotch with the boys. He's like, uh, he had a boomer dad, too. (laughs) The ultimate admiral. 
I think boomer dads are less scared of the apocalypse than they are of having a gay son. He would rather go out and create an atomic bomb than hang at son home with his ambiguous son. Old Morrison family disputes. I think next Thanksgiving I'm going to go to some rural family and have sex <laughs> with a femboy and just make it so they're boomer dad. What? What is happening? Hey, Zaddy, can you pass the gravy? And both me and the boomer dad reach for the gravy. <laughs> Take your dick out. It's straight. Uh, what else is happening here? Uh, just more Jim getting a B average. He said he was good enough to get into FSU. I got well over a 3.0 and I couldn't even get into FSU. I'm going to blame that on affirmative action. I firmly believe that Asians should be getting into Harvard. But uh, it's reserved for Chinese mainlanders now. Let's get back on track here. Got a fat quote. This is a funny one. It's from Jim's college roommate, Chris Cavillo. It doesn't matter. Jim was a troublemaker, always looking for a reaction. When his roommates were taking up a collection to pay the electric bill, Jim refused to contribute because he had an electric blanket, forcing them to freeze. They cut the cord to the blanket in retaliation. When his roommates insisted we wear a tie to a party, he tied it so that the knot was the size of a grapefruit, with a tie about three inches under it. When someone at the party said he liked Jim's knot, Jim said, You like my nuts? You crave my body? And he bit the guy's date on the neck and recited something from Dante's Inferno. In retrospect, this guy Chris... He was telling the author that Jim dressed in 1962 how college kids would be dressing in 1968. He's one of these original hipsters. He knew the trend before the trend. He took his typewriter to coffee shops. You said like he read Jack Kerouac before. That's the true DIY culture. I'm not trying to be a square. I'm going to go be homeless and figure something else out. Jim had that beat swag. You'll see he doesn't always have a roof over his head. These guys were blazing the trail of hippiedom. The doors, they got made fun of all the time for being squares, just so that Steven Tyler could rock the leather pants a decade later. With friends, they got fed up with Jim in college. They said he never put the brakes on those elaborate lies, nor did they believe him when he said he had let women urinate on a glass coffee table with him lying underneath it. They knew it was all for effect. Fucking Nikki Six told that same lie. What is this, the rock star credo? Nonetheless, eventually his roommates told him to leave, and Jim packed up his one suitcase of clothing and personal effects and two foot lockers of books and moved into a half trailer with a tar paper roof behind a girl's boarding house. <laughs> in college, he's living in a canvas house. Other students who he graduated with said that he did several projects on Hieronymus Bosch. I want to read a book on this guy. Go look at some of those Bosch paintings. It's like that Catholic Renaissance. There's a million things going on. Yo, when they had that uh, Travis Scott concert debacle, there was that picture that looked like the Scott head and all of the demons dancing into it. It's like a direct portrayal. Uh, definitely go look at the Bosch. One rainy night, Jim, he stole two umbrellas from a cop car, and him and his date had to go to jail. I thought it was to protect and serve. Quote, the professor for whom he had written the paper on Bosch bailed him out after he'd spent the night in jail and he had to call home for money to pay a $100 fine. Saw his parents in California only twice 
during his 18 months at FSU. So, like, most of his freshman year, he was hitchhiking across country. He had this buddy, Brian Gates. Might as well call him Carlo Marx, Dean Moriarty. He's living on the road. As a dropout, he somehow got admitted to UCLA Film School. Jerry said, Later this period would be called the film school's golden age. The faculty included three fine directors, Stanley Kramer, Gene Renoir, and Francis Ford Coppola. How the fuck... Did Jim Morrison get in to UCLA's Golden Age Film School? He only attended five classes in a year and a half. You know how he got in? (laughs) Um, Let me just draw the wider picture for you. One of those three directors, Francis Ford Coppola. His kid is Nick Coppola, also known as Nick Cage. (laughs) Like this Golden Age, all the people that Jim went to school with were also kids of very high up people. This is Hollywood affirmative action. Here, Jim finally meets kids who are reading better books than him. He's a small fish in a big pond. I guess that's better than being a a big fish than at the bottom of a bottle. Instead of reading freaking Kant and Frankel like all these other kids, Jim starts reading into Dionysian philosophy. (laughs) That's the god of wine. And the opposite of that in Greek terms is Apollo, the god of light and wisdom. Instead, he chose the dark side, very literally. Um, maybe he was just MK Ultrad from the start. With a dad like that, I wouldn't put it past him. Jim found one of Freud's disciples, Sandor Fenersesi. And so he's spreading the philosophy of free love. It's big. I mean, as a alcoholic, narcissistic, compulsive liar, he's the first to revive the philosophy of free love. That certifies him as a hippie to me. You know, I don't care how much of a boomer you are. I need my picket fence. I need to compulsively lie. Yes, all boomers. This guy started fucking free love. Of course he's a hippie. Uh, Let me clarify that point because people are going to conflate. All the boomers who got to go to Woodstock, they're self-centered winos. They have the story about how they almost had it all. They were ahead of the college trends. This guy embodies the boomer. (laughs) That might not be enough of a clarification, but we keep it moving here. Jim found his foursome finally. Quote, It was 1964, the year the Beatles conquered America, running into 1965, when California replied with The Beach Boys, The Sonny and Cher. This was the soundtrack that Jim and his cohorts lived. Uh, So I guess he'll meet them in a little bit. A point that I'll try to make here. It's also edgy and you'll hate me for it. The Doors are the American Led Zeppelin. What? You can't say that! Yeah, edgy take. The Doors' first album was 1967. Zeppelin's was 1969. These guys took back the crown. I'm slaying. No, they're not nearly as good as Led Zeppelin is, obviously. But we needed an American rock band. Otherwise, we would have gotten taken over by that British tide. He was going. He had his first time on stage this year, Jim Morrison. Quote, Jim said yes and pretended to play a guitar and was paid $25 at the end of the evening. Afterward, Jim said it was the easiest money he ever made. He uh, tells one of the four guys he played with, named Ray Manzarek, that they should start a rock band. So those two start looking for other people. They're the Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. 
they're smart enough to like <laughs> you know play the piano and sing but they got to find some people with real musical talent a martian like mick mars most important quote to end it a chapter if Jim was only peripherally a part of the music scene in 1965, he was on the cutting edge of another revolution, the drug revolution. Probably no other place on the planet was more tuned in or turned on to dropping out in 1965 than Los Angeles. When Jim slipped away from UCLA with his degree in theater arts and a diploma that had to be mailed to him because repeating his high school experience wasn't pres present when it was handed out, he started experimenting with anything that could be swallowed or inhaled. Yeah, he wouldn't go pick up his diploma, but he would go pick up some D-ball and shoot it up. I guess steroids were the one drug nobody did in the 60s. <laughs> the psychedelic adventure in those days was known as the Great Experiment. They called acid the atom bomb for the mind. It was like a mountain that you had to climb. Today, everyone's drug use is about getting fucked up. I'm trying to get wasted. Hashtag Zans for Juice World. People were trying to, like, ascend to another gayness. People in the 60s, they respected the person who went out on the edge. That's what I'm trying to get across in the intro. Like... You need someone that's going to spend eight hours a day at the record store and push the limits of music and find what's good and bring it back useful. We need these people. It's truly valuable. And Jim lived that line. They're seeing him as that in their group of four. So let's take it along to chapter three. These guys are leveling up. This one's called The Poet. Jim threw off his friend's scent trail by telling them he was headed to New York. This was another big fib. He actually heads to Venice Beach. Quote, Venice Beach was a small beach community that was designed at the turn of the century as an upscale resort. It never succeeded. Despite its complex of romantic canals, classic storefronts, and beachfront homes, Venice attracted a lot of attention in the 1950s as a magnet for beat poets and jazz musicians. And now it's a magnet for homos. I mean hobos, but both. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Blow? It gives... <coughs> I almost threw up. It gives a good portrayal of 1960s Venice Beach. It's Johnny Depp selling grass to hot chicks on the beach. It's fucking amazing. And then they get into hard drugs. And you see Jim Morrison follow a really similar loop when he moves to Venice Beach. Got a funny quote here. Jim lived on the roof of an apartment building, rarely eating and losing 20 pounds in weight in a period of three months. He took the Jim Morrison diet. He took LSD or smoked marijuana or both virtually on a daily basis while scribbling poetry in a notebook. <laughs> you think he's doing nothing in a psychedelic stupor here wasting away at the waist? These poems would eventually become the songs sung by a generation. This is uh, like uh, when he saw a black girl he liked, he described her as a dusky jewel in a poem that began, Hello, I Love You. Three years later, this poem was going to be number one, a fucking hit parade. And then a soul kitchen was written about Olivia's, a cheap restaurant on o Ocean Avenue where lunch c plates cost 85 cents. <laughs> so all these chicks that are listening to The Doors, oh my God, Jim Morrison, all of these songs are written about girls. These songs are written about restaurants, 
by a man that is in a psychedelic vortex. <laughs> One of these days on the beach, stumbling around, Jim ran into Ray Manzarek. Whoa, whoa, I thought you were in New York City. He shows him all the songs that he's been working on, and Ray Manzarek from the start is absolutely blown away. He's like, remember we used to talk about starting a rock band? Whatever the hell it is that you've been doing, it's working towards this goal. Jim goes, hey, Ray, you know, it's been a minute. A couple of riders on the storm we are. Wait, what did you say? Hey, Ray, how do you feel about a uh, moonlight drive tonight? Wait, say that again. There was this, uh, I think that was the first song that Jim pitched to him, Moonlight Drive, let's swim to the moon, let's climb above the tides, let's get lunch. Jerry wrote, two new musicians joined the group, both members of a class in transcendental meditation that Ray was taking. John Densmore, a drummer, was the first. As soon as Ray met him, he asked him to come to be a rehearsal, and soon after that, John bought Ryby Krieger, a guitarist. Densmore, Krieger, those are the final two doors that we're going to need. Krieger is not very sociable. Obviously, he slays the guitar. All of these guys were pretty under control as well. I think their manager said they were the most intellectual rock band they ever met. Then you got Densmore on the drums. That guy was like a, a sap. He was in tune with everybody's emotion. He's like the band-aid. He's the nurse for all of them. And then Ray, we know a little bit more now, Manzarek on piano. That guy's a fucking rock star. You listen to interviews of him today, he's still talking like it's the 1960s. His brain has been fried from pussy. Retweet. We've got a big quote here addressed to his dad. He was starting a rock band. It was a letter. Dad wrote back and said he paid for college and Jim never did anything musically before in his life, never showed any music ability. And now you're telling me after I paid for four years of college, you're starting a band? I think it's a crock. Jim never took kindly to criticism and he never wrote again. Dad felt bad about it later, but he said at the time he felt right. <laughs> he didn't say anything wrong, but he didn't take into account emotions. This kid had a cinema degree, and he's living on a roof. <laughs> Neither of them are wrong. But his dad kind of does have the egg on his face in history because he's the first one to call the doors a crock. You know, Jim Morrison, he's starting to get his career together for real. The London Fog, this was when Jerry Hopkins saw him. Ronnie Harwin was the lady who booked the Whiskey Go-Go. So after seeing them at the uh, London Fog, she billed Jim as the sexiest young rock star. This is like a marketing cult of personality. I'm telling you, this is how anything gets big in today's day and age. It's all about hype. No one cares about how good the quality of anything is. They got a spot opening up a headline at the Whiskey Go-Go, and Jim is thinking, I'm going to be rich beyond my wildest imaginations. 1966, Jim lives with Ronnie Harron for a few months, the lady, and she only gave him that spot because he slept with her. And this isn't breaking news, it's the 1960s. Oh my god, girls have to sleep with directors! Rock stars have to sleep with not that hot club bookers. Got a quote, Gay Blair was another woman in Jim's life at the time. Gay! That was their name. <laughs> their relationship was more violent. He was one of the worst lays I ever had, and I told him so, she said. He was the knockdown, drag-out fight, lamp-throwing fists. 
He'd gotten me down on the bed. I just bought a new outfit and he ripped it to shreds, put his knees on my arms and legs and spit all over my face. Oh. But then he turned sweet. We went to Barney's after that, taking a shower and he was lovey-dovey. What? There was this kid in my hometown. This is the only thing that relates. He had to go to jail because he put his uh, knees on a girl's shoulder and he fucked her face. And we call this sex move now the Pacciolo forever. He put his knees on her shoulder and he just thrusted. That's fucking awesome, baby. Jim Morrison invented the Pacciolo, it sounds like. <laughs> it's a deep shout out for any Jersey listeners we got. Go visit Mighty Mike. You know this is like a uh, recipe and a half for disaster. A fucking sudden explosion of fame. It's corrosive, and Jim's sleeping with all the club managers. He's getting to the top quick. Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone, came out. Jerry was saying this proves that you could go from acoustic to electric in the same song without losing your audience. And you know, The Doors is kind of an early jam band. They go for some hard bridges, but a lot of it is drawn out. Electra Records, they were looking for a group to perfect the new sound. The Doors fits the bill. Jack Holzman was the exec who signs them. He felt nothing the first time he saw the doors. So, like, the allure doesn't work on men. It's only women who like the leather pants. Jack was finally sold when he heard Light My Fire. They played it with a Baroque organ. What? That's what we used at the beginning of the show is fucking Baroque. They signed for an album with a 5% royalty the fame comes the women I'm saying it's gonna get hairy fast Jerry writes most important in Jim's life was Pamela Corson the daughter of an Orange County high school principal whom he met during the summer on Venice Beach Pamela was 19 a fragile redhead with pale skin dusted with cinnamon freckles enchanted by the hippie life and a little afraid of it Jim took her under his wing, introduced her to psychedelic drugs and poetry. Although he was not faithful, it was to Pamela he returned time after time, pledging his eternal love. <laughs> the whole band is living in Laurel Canyon apartment at the time. They're dirt poor. John and Ray said that they found Jim on the floor one day convulsing. This is not as fun as the uh, uh, Motley Crue apartment where they would wipe their ass with socks. Jim Morrison, every single day they came home, he was underneath the bed murmuring to himself on 10,000 mics of acid. That's the actual number, he said. We read in that chaos book that Dr. Jolly West, he killed an elephant with 100,000 hits of acid. It was somewhere in this ballpark. <laughs> Jim Morrison taking enough acid to kill an elephant. The night of their first gig at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, Jim was hiding under his bed, and he was on a heroic dose, so all the band members were coaxing him out. Hey, Jim, we got a show. This isn't the night. He finally comes out there late, stall the audience. Band opens with the end. <laughs> it's in a <laughs> Apocalypse Now. You've heard it a million times. It's like a 10-minute song in the long bridge. Jim Morrison starts making animal noises. Now, now. Now, now. Moo. What the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> they lose the gig at the go-go, and they're never hired there again. You know, hear all those stories. 
But yeah, you could ruin your one shop. Do not miss your chance to make a pig noise. Something just fell. How do you end an orgy? You thank everyone else for coming. <laughs> We're going to move along to our next chapter for The Rockstar. This first album got people moving. It had the end on it. It had some upbeat songs. Jim wanted to take people for a ride and he said he wanted to give them a piece of his depression damn (laughs) he's a Dionysian dick his songs are you know hypnotic and dreadful music isn't always about making you feel good this is the end my friend I'll never look into your eyes again that's deeper than kiss I want to rock and roll all night and have a wonderful time ride the snake to the ancient lake (laughs) He always gave a good performance, too. He's going, I watched this video, like, what was he saying? I, I want to show you guys my grasshopper. It's big. You want to see my grasshopper? And then he would move aside from the mic, act like he's about to undo his pants, and then he would bend down and go, oh, wait, that's just a moth. He gets a big laugh. Electro Records, they're seeing that he could do more than just sing. They give him another deal, and they put a single out, which is, Break on through to the other side. That's some upbeat doors. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Tried to run. Tried to hide. Break on through and suck off a guy. That's how it goes. They got publicity from Vogue magazine. They said Jim's lyrics were literate, concise, and terrifying. Ride the snake. (laughs) The lies continue. Even as a rock star, Jim is talking about (laughs) needing brain surgery jerry writes when electra records requested some basic biographic material for a press kit jim insisted his entire family was dead (laughs) the only information he provided was that his favorite food is meat and his favorite color is turquoise i always wonder to myself who likes turquoise the most mexicans or lesbians Here's an MK Ultra sound bite. He offered this one up to Electric Records. Electra. I've always been attracted to ideas that were about revolt against authority. <laughs> I like ideas about breaking away, overthrowing established order. I am interested in anything about revolt, disorder, chaos, especially activity that seems to have no meaning. <laughs> where did he get all these ideas and where did he get all that acid? How do you do 10,000 mics a night? I'm saying Dr. Jolly West. The West is the best. (laughs) Don't make me have to weave in more of this chaos book. Go back and listen to who supplied the acid. It was Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. CIA in-house acid makers. Who said that? Jerry said that the culture was thoroughly shocked by the subject matter in his songs. You know, in 1967, the top charts were... Snoopy versus the Red Baron, the Turtles singing Happy Together, and the Monkeys, I'm a Believer. <laughs> that was the music. So it's not really that hard to be edgy in the 1960s. You gotta respect it. Jim Morrison pushed to an edge that he didn't even need to. And today, we have a culture of depraved porn, forensic murder on demand. How do you find shock value? Everyone's a fucking demon. <laughs> This is why I lean into spirituality. It's because everything is scientific fact. That's what's edgy now. 
gay. Moving on. It's true, though. I mean, <laughs> yo, think about the 60s. They were riding science's snake. Jim Morrison was into the mystic. I think that's Van Morrison. Jim Morrison, Van Morrison. Conspiracy. He died and pretended to be Van. <laughs> it's all good counterculture always incorporates the ethereal since the beginning of time. Listen to uh, the crystal ship. That's a wild one. My, the doors, you could tell. Jim wanted people to like look into the mystery of the world in this know-it-all decade. It must have been unbearable. Well, you know, it's the 1960s. We went to the moon, so anything is possible. Everything's going to work out. You know, there's other forces at play here. Almighty science. <laughs> Jerry moves on to make the point that Jim fell in love with the camera. So this he used to be camera shy. He made it to a new level when he learned how to pretend that the camera is an attractive woman. What? That's a good tip for influencer dudes. We learned in that other book, chicks need to draw a silver line on their nose to look skinny. Dudes, pretend the camera is a woman. Why? Are, nobody's around cameras. They had a hit single, break on through to the other side. Their lifestyle basically stays the same. You don't make that much more money as a rock star. Jim's getting impatient. He famously said, we want the world and we want it now. And that becomes a chant at Vietnam protests. He also starts referring to himself at this time as the Lizard King. <laughs> don't worry, Pamela. I won't let all this fame get to my head. You don't mind calling me the Lizard King, right? You mean Godzilla, the Lizard King? That's <laughs> Hollywood nose timing. Break on through the other side comes out. They put Jim Morrison on the cover of some magazines, and they're going, put out a love song, and you're going to be uh, loved forever. They put out Love Me Two Times. Uh, the sound was like a studio country they were going for. I'm not a critic the same year, <laughs> but listen to my takes about them being the real Led Zeppelin. Same year, Mr. Morrison was promoted to Admiral, highest rank in the Navy. Guy was a commander, you know, Gulf of Tonkin. We kind of said that already. Let me go deep. In his words, he called the doors a crock. I'm calling the Gulf of Tonkin a crock. <laughs> a Vietnamese raft fired on a U.S. battleship for no reason. Tell me how that makes sense. That's kind of like a... Who did they say gassed his own people in Libya? And then it proved out. Why would you do that when you know America is right there? The old ship logs show that there were no Vietnamese ships in the Gulf that day. President Johnson admittedly knew it was a false flag and refuses to apologize. How else were we going to get Vietnam going? It would imply guilt if you apologized. That's why you can never say sorry. <laughs> LBJ. This guy is cross-dressing with the devil now. Running with the devil. That was my favorite band growing up, Van Halen. Maybe we do a book about them next year. We're not ready for Red Ze Led Zeppelin book yet. I would massacre that. <laughs> the mother and father came to a show in D.C. Jerry wrote here. She found a seat in the front row, Mom, and finally Jim acknowledged her when he played The End. Jim whispered, Father. I want to kill you. He paused, looking directly at them while singing into the mic. Mother, I want to. 
I want to fuck you. I told you this guy was reading too much Sigmund Freud. Jim Morrison, he never saw or talked to his mother again after this situation. It's pretty sad. Last time he saw his mom, he told her he wanted to fuck her. The band, they pay 50000 to break their contract with Elektra. They hire their own road manager to run the show. Some 20-year-old idiot who bought a snakeskin suit his first day he was hired. <laughs> Doesn't sound too idiotic. I'd rock that. Life Magazine was there with his daughter. Jim got arrested on stage. And I guess we're skipping to the Miami story. I think that's a little bit later. Yeah, he got arrested in, like, Massachusetts once because he was making out with the sheriff's daughter. And so they said he was inciting a riot on stage by singing. And he it was the middle of the end. They're playing, jamming out, and he goes, There was a blue pig. The blue pig came up to me. And he tells the whole story in his Jim Morrison cadence. And they pull him off stage during the end and arrest him. It was a pretty funny scene. They said Jim pranced around being chased, then kept pointing the mic at the cop's face like a gun. <laughs> that sounds like a Lenny Bruce set. <laughs> you get the cops to forcibly drag you off stage. Damn, man. <laughs> and he pointed it at their face like a gun. If you were black, you would get shot for doing that. Early 1977, Jim goes on the Ed Sullivan shows. His uh, weird attitude attracts all these young girls. He's wearing sunglasses in that one. Ed Sullivan had the balls to call him out about being arrested in Massachusetts. And Jim's response to starting a riot was, Aristotle didn't mean catharsis for the audience, but a purgation of emotions for the actors themselves. The audience is just a witness to the events taking place on stage. And the audience doesn't like to hear that because they paid for a ticket. What is live performance? They used to execute prisoners on stage in ancient Greece theater. He's talking about Aristotle here. I want to go to that show. If I hear that people are dying or being arrested and there's riots, I want to go to a Travis Scott concert now. He's saying, like, the make it a show. You don't always have to make people feel good. It's about breaking expectations. They're working on their third album. Jerry says the stories of his drunken episodes were now too numerous for anyone to ignore. Frequently, they were violent. Pam catching hands. While at the professional parties, it became a staple for the Lizard King to smash wine bottles over his head. This is the baptism of a Dionysian. You smash wine bottles over your... I used to... When I didn't have a wine opener at parties, you just smash the neck off of a wine bottle, drink out of it like a pirate. <laughs> Quote, another time in New York, Jim crawled on stage at the scene and wrapped his arms around Jimi Hendrix and tried to swing, eventually bringing the guitarist to his knees. A recording made at the time and later released as a bootleg album makes Jim sound like a steer being led to a slaughterhouse. <laughs> Maybe a... Uh little out of control, tackling Jimi Hendrix mid-lick. The band hires Bob Dylan's old manager to babysit Jimi on the road, Jimi Morrison. Jim used his vocal range to mimic the guy's voice back to him. It's pretty fucking hilarious. <laughs> the manager got so annoyed. This was Bob Dylan's old handler. He left Jim alone to drink. 
Jim Morrison has a superpower, perfect pitch. How hard could you prank someone if you could mimic their own voice? Mimic the voice of their dying relatives, really make them go insane. Perfect pitch? That shit's awesome. (laughs) He went off the rails right before the summer of love. I found that pretty sad. It's 1967 now. He catalyzed it, though. Pamela is urging him to leave the band and become a writer. He could have probably been convinced of that in his early days when he was just doing sit and writing poetry. Probably would have had a bigger impact on the culture movement, too, honestly, if he didn't die of a heroin overdose. (laughs) Alcohol, I'm saying, is the true gateway drug here. Who takes psychedelics and says, hmm, maybe I'll try heroin? Nobody does that. Also, nobody sober thinks maybe I'll shoot up just this once. It's always alcohol. That's the common denominator in all of these banned books. So I usually say sober. (laughs) You can get drunk on pussy. That might lead to heroin, in Jim's case. 1968, they're doing a world tour, and Jim is rolling around on stage. He becomes an icon, the signature leather pants with the looped belts. And uh, it's when he did the fart in his pants. What happens if you fart inside of a leather pants? (laughs) The band hires a Zen expert. This guy was saying that Jim is walking a thin line and he might collapse on stage for real one of these times. So neither a guru nor a babysitter was able to control Jim. It's getting bad. He passed out from fatigue on a flight to Amsterdam. He had an unknown amount of hashish in his system. The doctor said he actually collapsed because of exhaustion. Jim really didn't have an off button, Jerry wrote. Jim liked to walk the streets of Hollywood, and frequently when he met a young woman, no matter how overweight or unattractive, he took her back to the tiny room. Jim was one of the last great mercy fucks. One of his close friends said, I think that every woman in Los Angeles has slept with him, said Tina Robbins, an artist and designer. One girl said he called her over. When she came over, he was in bed with another chick. (laughs) 1969, they play Madison Square Garden for the first time. It's considered the beginning of the end, my friend. Chapter 5, The Drunk. 1969, Jim was drunk when he arrived at Miami's Key Auditorium. They sold an extra 7,000 tickets against all of the ordinance for the stadium. They shove all those people in. Jerry writes, The tape I have of the concert shows Jim was entirely too drunk to perform. Over the hour, the Doors repeatedly tried to get Jim on track musically, starting and abandoning several songs when Jim was unwilling or unable to sing. While Jim interacted with the audience sharing drinks with the ones closest to the stage, then standing up and bellowing, I'm not talking about a revolution, I'm talking about a good time. This dude is plastered on stage. He's still making it work, though. (laughs) He tries to call girls on stage. He's saying, I need some loving right now. Quickly degenerates into him calling everyone in the crowd fucking assholes. Get a quote here. 
Vince Trenor, the band's road manager, was on stage behind Jim, and he said that when Jim unzipped his leather pants, he was wearing bulky boxer shorts underneath them. Unusual for Jim because he rarely wore underwear. Vince said it was Jim's intention to go only so far, just as living theater has done, then stop. After enough shots, you forget that it's a bit... Ray Manzarek backs him up to this day. He goes, yeah, Jim was pretending to, like, hold his shirt over his penis and pull down his boxer shorts. So no one actually ever saw anything. And Ray Manzarek goes, to this day, what the audience saw was in their mind's eye. Jim didn't expose himself to anybody that day. He's a fucking bro, Ray Manzarek. (laughs) No files were charged against Jim until March 5th of 1969. Dade County issued a warrant for his arrest. So obviously they're not going to go back to Miami for a while. But this affected Jim really bad. He stopped wearing his leather pants. He started growing out a beard. He was like, this is all I can get away with on stage. I literally didn't show anybody my penis. And now the cops are after me because they have to protect people. If you wanted to protect people, don't let 7,000 extra bodies onto the floor. That's how you get a Travis Scott trampling. No, they're protecting you by making sure no one gets to see a dick. It's all about social control and making sure we don't have too much fun. It's fucking Puritanism. Day later, there was another charge acted, added for simulated oral copulation of his guitar player. <laughs> I wasn't aware that's illegal. You are not allowed to pantomime a blowjob. Every single open micer I see doing this, I'm going to make a citizen's arrest on. What? You're not allowed to go and pretend to suck a dick? (laughs) This is wild. I mean, you're coming off the 1950s where you couldn't curse, so I guess it makes sense. Jim got arrested so that us clowns can suck the biggest imaginary dicks that we want. (laughs) telling you he was pushing all kinds of boundaries managers say the whole fiasco that the doors cost millions of dollars in revenue here but think about the publicity that they got jim morrison that's the guy who took his dick out on stage and hold up just to double down on my thing from before the singer for led zeppelin he's rumored for taking out his dick it was after jim morrison Jerry is saying uh, this basically got him to the Rolling Stone interview, the kingmaker, otherwise they wouldn't have had it. I know last chapter was called The Rock Star, but I think this is the move that <laughs> launched him into infamity, only famous forever for exposing himself. This is a voyeur's dream. He did 50,000 people at once. He flashed them. Bands are known for breaking up over much smaller <laughs> they see now that Jim, his main concern isn't the money. And that honestly what it is for the other guys, even though they say, it's just the music, bro, and you're being self-centered. And Jim's like, we all only care about money. Stop pretending. It's, uh, you'll see. They start to devolve, and this is really when the music goes downhill as well for the Doors. Pamela, she's going on $5,000 shopping trips. Jim doesn't make this much money in a week. It's the record labels that are getting rich, and eventually they get rich over time off of royalties. 
These guys are living in the circus. This is the fun times. It's not time to go do a shopping trip. 1970, Jim is getting deeper connected in Hollywood. Quote, during the same period, Jim met Timothy Leary, in-house acid cook, to talk about documenting his run for the California governorship, but Leary was thrown in jail aborting the project. Efforts to make a deal with Carlos Castaneda to film his book, The Teachings of Don Juan, were no more successful, and when Steve McQueen considered Jim for a role in a film called Adam, at 6 p.m. Jim was rejected. You get the point of that quote. Jim is throwing all of his opportunities away by getting way too drunk. Uh, more of this like Jim and Pam drama. <laughs> Yo, Jim and Pam from The Office. So, uh, Pam, we can't get married because Dwight exposed to me his penis. And I think I liked it. That's great, Jim. The Office, Jim and Pam. October 1970, the legal system catches up. Jim is fined. $500 and six months in jail from Miami for public indecency. All those people in the courtroom, they had to attest to seeing his testicles. That gives a whole new meaning to the word testament. <laughs> Quote from the courtroom drama, When the verdict was finally read, Jim put down the book he was reading, a biography of Jack London, and looked without emotion at the judge. He had been found guilty of exposure and profanity on all other charges, including drunkenness. He was found innocent. Bail was set. Date was scheduled for sentencing. Jim went back to L.A. It's a pretty baller move. He was just reading in court. Jack London. Maybe it was White Fang because he showed his White Fang. That's a Jack London penis joke. Where else are you going to get that? For even more drama, Jim's lover, Pam. No, it was actually his lover, Patricia, some other chick. She told him that she was pregnant with his baby. Electra Records, they're repackaging. The Doors hits already. They kind of know that it's over, so they're doing the greatest hits album. <laughs> it's the downswing, baby. Pam was getting into heroin regularly, so Jim would do it with her from time to time. He's getting bloated. His beard comes and goes. He's a changeling. Heroin stories are getting worse. Like, uh, I don't know. We already read this in the dirt. Nikki Six's dealer threw his body into a dumpster. That sounds like a metaphor. I woke up in a dumpster. <laughs> then he OD'd again. Like, nobody does it worse than those fucking lunatics. Got a funny quote here. Jim loved coke in the same way he enjoyed his earlier drugs, and he went at it in the same unbridled manner, echoing a famous mountain climber's reason for scaling Mount Everest. He told a friend, if there was a mountain of coke in the yard, I'd do it up because it was there. Mountain climbers are addicts, just like cokeheads. I've been forming this opinion of my own. People in Boulder are obsessed with fitness to an unhealthy degree. If there's a mountain, I gotta climb it. If there's a line, I gotta snort it. Never stop exploring North Face. Isn't that there? I can't feel my North Face when I'm with you. <laughs> I should do blow on the top of a mountain for the Patreon. I might just instantly ascend. Yeah, Jim is getting really lost in his drug habits. He had this creepy dealer friend called Magda, 
and he said they would slit their arms together with razors and pour wine into their open wounds. <laughs> so it's like cocaine logic. Oh, my arm is right there. I might as well crack it open and pour some fucking wine in. All rock stars eventually succumb to Satanism. It's this blood doping or whatever. Jim the polygamist out here is getting in screaming matches with Pamela who wants a baby. They're both on heroin. The fun times are devolving. Ray Manzarek said the managers turned down Woodstock 69. What the heck? I don't know, man. How did the uh, stoners get to Woodstock? They took the cannabis. Chapter 6, The Exile, our final one. The start of the falling action of the book is Pamela's obsession with Paris. I mean, she already got him on heroin, but this is free-falling action. We need to go to Paris. Hyped it up as the end of all road trips. <laughs> you don't take a drug addict on the end of all trips. That's when they're going to overdose. <laughs> Pamela was obsessed with royalty. She convinced Jim to go by mentioning all the old writers and artists he used to be inspired by. She's fucking manipulating him. You remember reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? Let's go do fucking heroin in Paris. Stop it, Pamela. Go hang out with Michael Scott. Jim is far from where he started. He and his friends were terribly bored, and they took a lot of heroin. He'd tell her, we were the last of the dinosaurs. The aristocracy was dying out. So they, like, took pride on it as a band for a little bit. You know, we are the last real ones. Jim spent the first three weeks there. He was going to museums alone, wandering the city. He wrote about it as a great time. Rent a massive apartment near the Bastille. And Pamela finally arrived. She had this royal entry. He took her around everywhere. Jim, <laughs> his like a business manager, was telling Jerry Hopkins for the book that his finances were draining rapidly at this time. I guess women really are like drugs. They're too expensive and ruin your life. We can see Paris without a fucking French balcony, babe. I don't understand why we need to spend million dollars i'm gonna plug this guy again vagrant holiday it's one of the best youtube channels you'll ever see this guy lives the real beatnik lifestyle in 2022 jerry writes here jim was familiar with the junkie underground or at least aware of it not because of pamela's sporadic use of the drug but because of the dives in which he chose to drink the most notable of these in Paris at the time was the circus, where the walls were covered with huge photographs of rock stars wearing clown costumes. Rock and roll was still the music played, but now most of the action wasn't on the dance floor. It was in the toilets. <laughs> the 60s are over. Jim is feeling like he missed all the action. Bathroom hookups are underrated. I don't know, man. Like, you might be three feet away from a turd, but the exhilaration is when you exit. You have to tell the girl to leave before you. And I know that's not the action they're talking about. People are doing coke in the bathrooms. <laughs> and they'll have sex while you do coke. <laughs> and in the sauna, after you show them your penis. Jim's final purchase was made at the circus. Before leaving, he snorted a line of heroin, then slumped into a comatosis state. So they're saying that some people had to carry his body 
through the dance floor and into a taxi cab. Uh, Jerry, quote, at this point, it is generally agreed that Jim was still alive. This is reasonable. In most heroin overdoses, the victim generally dies after one of the two hours of lethargy, stupor, and coma. The way this story ends, Jim was returned to his flat and dumped into a bathtub full of cold water in an attempt to revive him. Standard treatment for an overdose. Although there is some question about his practicality. There was one version of how Jim died. Of course, it wasn't the only one. So I'm just thinking right now, Nikki Six's dealer threw him into a dumpster. He didn't even try to do the bathtub trick to wake him up. <laughs> the guy was still alive. He threw his live body into a dumpster. Pam's story is that she came home and he w- and she was able to wake him up. And he puked a few times and then he died. Forensic investigators didn't find any vomit on the scene. Pam's story, complete crock of shit. She wants it to be the love story. I I was able to reignite his dying light one more time. He came back from the dead for me. Her f- story is complete bullshit. This Courtney love bitch wants all the glory. Everything happens for a reason. At least we didn't have to witness, like, <laughs> Pam turning him into an aristocrat. That's why she took him to Paris in the first place. It would be fucking cringe to see 2022 Jim Morrison tweeting about climate change. <sighs> the only real rock star left is Eric Clapton. <laughs> who has like degenerative hand disease. He can't play guitar anymore. Because he took... I didn't say it. <laughs> Official police report said... Nothing suspicious was noticed on the spot either in the apartment or on the body. Left no traces or blows, lesions, or needle marks. What? Cue the conspiracies. No needle marks, no fucking traces. I thought he OD'd on heroin. Can you OD from snorting? I don't know that enough. But you think you'd see some signs. Jerry said here, One story had his death part of a serpentine conspiracy connecting the deaths of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, MLK, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, the Kent State Five, and several Black Panthers. Each was more ridiculous than the last. I had to finish the book. I didn't believe this official story for a minute and didn't feel comfortable with Herb Mueller's carefully researched nightclub toilet overdose. So uh, Jerry's trying to finish the book, and he's like, none of the stories make sense. Jerry actually said of the 10,000 copies of the book, he asked the publisher if he could do two different endings. And they were like, hell no. (laughs) No, books aren't allowed to be ambiguous like rock and roll. Books are science. The big theory of his death is suicide. Nobody likes to say it, but he wrote in his notebook that day, leave the informed sense in our wake. You be the Christ on this package tour. Money beats soul. Last words out. This was the last thing he ever wrote in his diary. Pamela knew that he was in the deepest depression of his life. So taking him away from his loved ones and his home. Going to Paris. (laughs) That helps. Like seriously, what if she was a Courtney Love fucking agent that probably blew off his head? 1973, his apartment was turned into a shrine. People say they communicate with his spirit through there. There's even wackier stuff that you hear of in the years that followed. 
pampered Pam fought for acceptance as Jim's heir and wife. <laughs> so does this show you what this chick was after? Fucking pampered Pam. I like that. I should have used that more. Listen to this quote. In her court statement, it said, Jim reported to me that he learned from an attorney that to create a marriage in the state of Colorado, it was sufficient if two people stayed together, had marital relations, and agreed to thereby be husband and, and wife if, in fact, they thereafter conducted and held themselves out as each other's spouse. We spent the night at a hotel, had sexual relations, and agreed we would forever be together as husband and wife. What? So this bitch is citing some old 1800s Colorado pioneer law that says if you sleep together, you're married to someone. And she's using this in court to try to get a hold of Jim Morrison's estate. Fuck Pam Corson. What? Friends till the end, this bitch. <laughs> That's not enough for her. This is the end. <laughs> December 1971, quote, the three surviving doors filed papers of their own in court making claims against the Morrison estate. Most of it for a loan they said Jim had taken to help pay legal costs. Fuck, man. So, like, even Ray Manzarek was going, it's all about the music, man. Even the boys will defile your grave for some equity. All three of the other doors sued him posthumously holy shit man jerry wrote i think jim would be amused that his posthumous fortune is being shared by a retired high school principal and a retired navy admiral authority figures for whom he had no time or respect when he was alive don't count on justice in the afterlife people <laughs> you've got to make your own fucking justice how bad is that all of his money went to a fucking principal you get the bigger point Jerry Hopkins is making. There's nothing rock and roll about it. We'll end on Jerry's informed opinion on the matter. Final quote as I get ever. I need air. Holy shit. <laughs> I am certain that Jim died of an overdose of heroin complicated by the alcohol level in his bloodstream. What generally happens when these two drugs come together and deliver their synergistic hammer blow is described as a massive pulmonary enema, a kind of mega heart attack, <laughs> where the victim poisoned by the combination slumps from spilling from his mouth and nostrils. A pulmonary enema? I think the remaining three doors should start a band called Mega Heart Attack. What caused this Dionysian pirate to die? He clogged up his arteries. <laughs> Jim Morrison, he really opened up the capillaries of American culture. For that, we got to thank this guy. Jim Morrison, he blazed the psychedelic frontier. He pushed rock and roll. He took it back from the Brits for a minute. Let's thank him. Let's thank Jerry Hopkins for this book. And I want to thank you guys, the listener, for staying tuned for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction, The Lizard King by Jerry Hopkins. This is the end. Thank you guys for listening. Truly a fun time. Make sure you are checking out Instagram, Harry Schwant, patreon.com slash the niche. Next week on the show, we have got a fun one. Holy shit, we have got a good one. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have got the statues 
that walked. We're getting into a proper mid-month mystery. How were the Moai, the Easter Island heads that you've heard so much about, how were they built? What happened to the people that made them? Did these statues actually walk? Easter Island represents mystery. It also represents idolatry. Jim Morrison is to rock and roll what Moai's and Easter Island is to mystery. The unexplained. I love that topic. You guys know it. It's going to be a full-length public edition because this is a mystery that does not put my life at risk. Make sure you guys are on those Patreon editions, please, because once you are subscribed, you are getting a free top secret edition every single month. You're getting a free meme video. You're getting an HD hike. YouTubers, I want to thank you guys having fun here every single week. It wouldn't be possible without you. So thanks. My name is Nick Munez. Check everything out. Love you all. See you in seven short days. Peace.